prelude. As far as Justin was concerned, it's unless if she had been scooped up from her old life and deposited on some remote alien world. Just like that girl in that corny old film, The Wizard of Oz, except that it was no magical technicolour kingdom in which she now found herself. It's central London in January, and that was about as far from magical as she could possibly get. Been raining constantly for nearly three days now. A coat she was wearing purported to be weatherproof, but she doubted that the manufacturers had ever experienced it to be worn continuously for day after day, as she'd been doing with no chance of it drying out. Her boots were starting to suffer as well. She didn't want to imagine how comfortable she was going to be if she had to start trudging through the streets with wet feet. Thankfully, she managed to wedge herself into the doorway of a closed and shuttered news agent during the worst of today's downpours. At least the spare clothes that she had bundled up in a rat stack would still be dry. There was, were much better places to shelter for the rain. But of course, of course, but the recent experience but recent experience had taught her that the bigger and more sheltered the storefront and more aggressively the security staff would move her on. She sighed when she imagined her escape to the capital. It seemed so vibrant and exotic, the images on the television showing her nothing but happy, smiling people hurrying through the dazzling displays of twinkling lights as they went about their Christmas shopping. Those lights were all gone now, if they ever had been any happy face. Smiling, happy, smiling people thronging the streets. They had been replaced by morose imposters. She had lost count of the number of times she had been shouted at or shoved out of the way in the last few days. Still, it better than being back at home. She had taken the, she had take the sudden strangers over Adrian any day. Adrian was her mum's boyfriend. He said he was involved construction in the film industry. Carpenter, plaster, or something, but it hadn't. It hadn't taken Justin long to realise that he was re- what he really was. Every time he, they were alone, he sat close beside her, made salacious comments that made her skin crawl. Justin had told her mum, but her mum refused to believe it. You're jealous, trying to spoil this for me. Their house in Bristol had always been a sanctuary for her, a safe place where she could shut out the outside world and surround herself with things made her happy. Age of arrival changed all that, and now, every time she returned home to find his big black SUV parked outside the house, outside, parked outside, the house seemed like the most dangerous place in the world. Better the streets on her own than back there with him. Been, there had been over three weeks ago now, Pulling up the collar of her sudden coat, she heaved a rucksack higher onto her shoulder and set off for the sea. People hurrying around the rain-soaked streets. She wondered for the thousandth time if anyone was looking for her. Every day she was afraid of being sighted, just as scared of staying lost. Oh, get easier, she told herself, wondering if she ever really believed that. She made her way east along the strand. Crowds filling out, she left the theatre district behind her, trudged past the law courts on Fleet Street and entered a quite calm the city of London. Financial district was bustling with people during weeknights, but at the weekends it was virtually deserted, and that suited Justin just fine. 
She hurried on past the huge historic buildings that still dominated this part of London. So Paul's Cathedral, the Bank of England, a world of strange, and made her way into a tangle of narrow passageways that wound away through Cheapside. The ancient stone buildings now gave way to modern structures of steel and glass and portal cabins and heavy machinery at the construction, construction sites that littered the roads at the foot of each. He turned into another alleyway, ignoring the road closed and diversion signs, making their way towards the steel fence that had been erected as far at the far end. Checking there was no one watching, Justin quickly scaled the fence, dropping nimbly onto the freshly made tarmac the other side. He hurried across the deserted building site, splashing through huge shallow puddles of rainwater to where a huge pile of air-conditioning duckling, duckling sat swathed in tarpaulins at the base of a towering construction crane. With one last look around to check that she hadn't been spotted, Justin lifted up the edge of the tarpaulin and ducked inside. This has been where she'd been sleeping for the last week. Most of the local construction sites were impossible to get into, but in the five nights she'd been here, Justin had only been seen one elderly security guard. She assumed there must be some delay with this construction project, as she hadn't seen a single worker or noticed any movement or goods, either in or out. Whatever the reason was, she was just glad to have somewhere safe to sleep. Length of the ducking wasn't warm, but at least it was dry and relatively clean. The only down, real downside was she occasionally heard rats scurrying across the top of it, their claws clattering on the metal, shrugging off her sack, off her rat sack. Justin crawled further along the length of the metal tube towards a bundle of blankets. They had been handed out at the church in Soho. Justin accepted them, had accepted a couple gratefully. The material was harsh and scratchy. Not at all like the blankets of a bed at home, but at least they helped keep out the worst of the cold. Outside she c- could hear the rain intensifying. The tarpaulin started to flap noiselessly in the wind, shivering. She pulled the blanket tighter around her. So long since she slept in a proper bed, so long since she'd been eaten a proper meal, so long since she had a shower. Three weeks of rain and cold and rats. As if on cue, there's a clatter of claws on the metal of the ducking. A wave of despair threatened to overwhelm her. Justin had never felt so unloved, pathetic in her life. Suddenly there was a tremendous cracking noise, like a bundle of twigs being snapped, but not so loud that it shook the metal of the ducking. And instantly Justin was on her feet, trying to work out where the sound had come from. A heart leapt at the sound of footsteps from the yard outside, and moments later there was a rustle of plastic and tarpaulin, tarpaulin covering. Her mouth for the ducking was pulled aside. Justin snatched up her backpack. The two figures, wearing filthy top, top stepped into the tube. Oh, God, she felt herself freeze, terrified. No need to be scared, dearie, the leading figure's voice was rasping hoarse. We're not going to hurt you. Justin backed away as the intruders started to advance along a pipe towards her. I haven't got any money, she said quickly. Money? The figure gave a wheezing laugh. It's not money we're after. 
Got no u- got no use of it, chipped in the other chipped in the other. It's a donation of what? Of what? Well the first one giggled. Charity begins at at at, at homeless. Justin had heard enough. The two were troubled, clearly off their heads. He turned to run, knowing there was a way out at the other end of the ducking. She then but as she turned her foot caught on the hem of a blanket and she crashed heavily to the floor. Immediately the two figures pounced, gripping Justin's arms and legs. With a scream of rage, Justin kicked out a heel, catching one of the assailants on the side of the head and sending him sprawling. Staring with anger, the other pinned her to the floor. Justin gave a grasp of horror. Beneath the hood, there was something terribly wrong with her attacker's face. The eyes were big and dark. Her features mishaped. Shapen the hiss with a hiss, the thing opened its mouth, buried teeth like rotten spikes. A vile animal spray spattered onto Justin's face. She groaned, revolted. The smell was overpowering as a blackness engulfed her. All she could hear was the cluttering of rats. Part 1, 2020. Chapter 1. Dorothy McShane jolted from her sleep, letting out the creature that was reaching for her. But it was no creature. She was alone in the bedroom. A attacker, nothing but a phantom from a nightmare. With a groan, she slumped back into bed, and the sheets rumpled. Her arms and forehead sick sick with sweat. She closed her eyes again and lay motionless in the cool dark of a moment, trying to control her breathing and slow her heart rate. It had been the same story every night this week, the same nightmare, the same moment of sudden awakening, the same conviction that she was fighting for her life. It become it was coming tiresome. As with all the previous occasions, she tried to recall the exact events of her nightmare, hoping that some Remember detail might provide a pointer to what might be triggering his dreams. It always began exactly the same way, feeling someone being drawn out of, their, of her body, watching her sleeping self recede into the distance as she rose higher and higher until she was floating far above the city, looking down at the patchwork of roads and buildings, lights blazing into the night. The things tended to kick up a gear. She found herself moving faster. Getting attitude until London was no more than a smudge of light below her. Soon the planet itself was revealed, a globe of brilliant blue against the blackness before the two receded, which flying through nothing but stars of blackness. Dorothy always enjoyed this bit, but always she'd always enjoyed the sensation of speed, bikes, cars, planes. She couldn't get enough of them. As dreams went, there was little that was unusual so far. Dreams of leaving the physical form behind or flying were common enough. Indeed, given her own past history, it might also be considered inevitable that she would have dreams of this type. But it was what happened next that was troubling her. His iterating flight was always brought to a wrapped halt in the same place, a vast dust-scoured desert littered with razor-sharp rocks and shards of broken crystal, stretching out, seeming forever, Beneath the sky, the colour of vomit. Every breath that Dorothy tried to 
taken this barren place seemed as sheer the inside of her lungs. And with every step she took, the edges, the edges without threatened the size through the soles of her shoes. All around her, she could see other figures making their painful way across the hostel sand, far too far away to make out in their faces, but close enough to hear their anguished cries. But scores of them, men, women, children, all making their way across a huge building on the horizon. The structure was vast, with cracked and crumbling walls, seemingly made of a rough, dark pumice. Huge chimneys rose from its centre, belching thick, oily smoke into a sick-looking sky, and the sound of grinding engines reverted from within. Fingers of lightning constantly tore from the clouds that rolled above it. The cracks of thunder echoed across the barren landscape. It was a vision of hell itself. Dorothy tried to force her subconscious to remember something useful, some face she recognised, or detail about the building that seemed familiar, but any memory that might help unravel the cause of her nightmares was always drowned out by the appearance of the creature. The event that tore her from her sleep every night was exactly the same, but it was always started the same way. A bubbling, boiling clouds started to thicken and swell the pale yellow of the sky, darkening to a deep plus, pus like orange. Deep in the clouds, a huge dark shape started to solidify. All around, people started to flee, and Dorothy fled with them, but nothing what but not knowing what it was she was running from, but knowing instinctively that it was the right thing to do. The razor edges of the rocks tore at her feet, making her cry out in pain with every footfall. She dared not think what damage they would do to her hands and face as she lost her balance and fell. From behind her was a sudden crash of thunder, immediately followed by the sound of a horse animal breathing, as something unseen bore down on her. And then every night Dorothy turned to face whatever the horror might be, only find a fast, scurrious talon, its fingernails cracked and dirty, reaching out for her, engulfing her, snatching her off her feet and lifting her towards a face so terrible, so monstrous, she woke, literally believing she was fighting for her life. Dorothy took a deep breath, and opened her eyes. Her mouth was dry. She knew from experience that that was little chance of her being able to get back to sleep. Pushing aside the sweat-soaked duvet, duvet, she swung her legs to the floor and stood for a moment, naked in the dark, curling her toes in a thick pile of bedside rug, luck rating in the air-conditioned calm of her room. Reaching down, she snatched up her robe from where from where she discarded it on the floor the previous night. She'd never been tidy as a teenager. Things hadn't changed. With a rustle from the far side of the room, a black cat appeared sauntering across the polished wooden floor towards her, its expression leaving, its expression leaving Dorothy in no doubt that exertions had woken it from her sli- its sleep. Yeah, sorry, muttered Dorothy. Look, like you never had the bad dreams, Sorin hopped up for into the bed, sniffing at the rumpled sheets disdainfully, before curling up with a fold of the duvet. Dorothy gave him an infectious rub behind the ear and shrugged into a 
into her dressing gown, tied it, and made her way down the stairs that led to the rest of her apartment. As with every morning, the view from her apartment lifted her spirits, the floor to ceiling windows, coupled with the fact that she was 18 stories up, gave her an unparalleled view from the, over London. On a clear day, she could see as far as the Chilterns. She always felt that early mornings was the best time to see London, a scant few hours when the craziness of the clubbers, partagovers was over, the difficult, cra- the different craziness of the morning commute had yet to begin. In summer, she liked to watch the first rays of the rising sun, Caught the spirals of the churches and lit up the dome of St. Peter's Cathedral, rising above the rooftop, making the grim blackened stones shine as if shine, glowing with an inner light. But this is generally, and sunrise, if the sun indeed managed to shed any light for the ponderous grey skies, clouds. She was still hours away. Was still hours away. London would be dark for a good while yet. Crossing to the window, she peeped down the ancient building that formed the Tower of London, choosing the location for the headquarters of a charitable earth and amused Dorothy. She'd been quite adamant about it when the building had been commissioned, despite the fact she'd been immediate and vociferous opposition to its construction. She had known only too well that the basis for that opposition was, of course, it had nothing to do with environmental concerns or visual pollution or any one of the other dozens or so reasons that had been put forward to try and impede the building's construction. Truth was that, was that nestled in foundations of uh, Tower of London had been the UK's central, UK control centre, the unit, Unified Intelligence of Task Force, a first line of defence against alien incursions. No one had been prepared to admit that publicly, of course. So the legal team that Dorothy had employed successfully overcame every other objection to the building's construction, and now an elegant tower of glass and steel loomed over the ancient walls of flint and stone. Dorothy's reason for locating her quarters here had been simple. If I had a clear view down onto the private roadway that led to the unit's headquarters, being able to track the number of vehicles going in and out, given her early warning, her early warning of any possible unusual activity, she had never imagined that just a few years later the entire organisation would be mothballed in the, on the orders of Whitehall. The official process from Geneva went on, but the fact remained that the unit was over and Earth was less defended. If Brigadier Bob Barrier had lit, stayed in charge of the unit, then perhaps things would have gone differently, but poor Wilfred was still listed as missing in action, following a sea devil attack on, on a classified military listing post just off the South Wales coast. Dorothy set up a search protocol on a computer for any report mentioning Barnaby, Barnaby, Barnaby by name, but the brigadier had been but if the brigadier had been located then someone was keeping it quiet. I should set off to c- set up in Cardiff, Dorothy muttered. T- 
Turning away from the window, she made her way to the well-equipped open-plan kitchen and turned on the kettle. As soon as the water had boiled, she made herself a cup of strong black coffee, snatched at the remote that was sitting on the countertop, and started to it through the channels on a well-mounted on a wall-mounted TV. It never ceased to amaze Dorothy that television companies would turn out so many hours of utter trash. It's hardly surprising that this stuff was relegated to the small hours of the morning schedule. She clicked from channel to channel in search of something that could help her gauge her, gauge, help her gauge for an hour or so. A familiar face appeared on the screen, and Dorothy gave a groan of despair. Kim Fortune was a conspiracy theory nut who hoisted, hosted his own podcast, Kim Fortune's Mysterious World. How the hell had he managed to get himself a broadcast lot, even on one of the less reputable cable channels? Only Dorothy wouldn't have given him the time of day, but Kim had proved himself to be a better aggressive journalist than he suspected several months ago. One of his podcasts had wildly got had one of his podcasts had got wildly close to the truth. He suggested that there might be a connection between several unexplained events and, and herself. Exclusive CEO, CEO of a charity Earth. So Dorothy agreed to be interviewed, figuring that if she was going to broadcast stories about her, she might as well have some level of control over their contents. To a certain extent, the strategy had worked, and so far she had managed to steer his research away from the events of a past that might prove complicated displayed to areas that were less contentious. The downside was that he now took her willingness to be interviewed as a tactical approval of him, his journalism, and barely a week went by when he wasn't trying to contact her to present his latest theory about aliens or government projects or a lot less monster. He even turned out an exception last month before security had politely and firmly informed him that Dorothy wasn't available to meet him and escorted him for the premises. Ever, even then, he hung, he hung about the street for nearly an hour before leaving Dorothy before leaving, Dorothy attempted to let him know about the former unit based under the tower. That might divert his attention for a while. QTV's show appeared to be much the same as his podcast, with mockery music and added dodgy CGI. You're presenting an expose about alien abductions in the UK. Your interviews of parents claiming their children being abducted and teenagers telling their stories of their lucky escapes. Dorothy was about to change the channel when one when then stopped and one of the interviews caught attention. The girl that Kim was interviewing must have been about 13 or 14, flanked by a grim-faced parents. She described how aliens came to the house and tried to abduct her. Already, Dorothy would have, not, had to, would have dismissed the claims. Pure fancy. But as the girl continued to relate what happened, to her, Dorothy began to realise that it was uncannily similar to her own dream. Fascinating now, Dorothy turned up the volume and set up one of the, and sat on one of the breakfast bar stools, sipping a coffee and listening intently to the girl describe her experience. It was extraordinary. The out of body experience, the sensation of light, the hostile searing desert. It was exactly the same. The real gut punch, however, came right at the end of the interview. When Kim revealed that events had taken place in Parvaville, no more 
then a few streets away where Dorothy spent her early years. As her program finished, the credits started to roll. Dorothy sat back, her mind racing. Not only was the girl's experience virtually identical to nightmares she'd been having, but the fact that it happened in Pellerville made it virtually a cup of coffee. What happened to her with 16 scooped up in a time storm from her old bedroom in 1987? And in t- at the time, she never, she never thought that she'd been a result, had been a result of a juvenile meddling chemistry. Only much later, learning it was a work of an ancient evil entity, Frederick. Was the same thing somehow happening to other people? Her own experience could, couldn't have made her, sen- could have made her sensitive to those storms in time, whatever they ha- whatever they were. Why? She thought miserably. Why is it happening? Again. Chapter Two. Shutting off the TV, Dorothy made her way into the setting room, dropped down into the couch, and flipped open the laptop and sat on a huge grass-topped coffee table that dominated the room. Tucking her legs underneath her in an almost yoga-like pose, Dorothy replaced her coffee on the table, slipped on her reading glasses and began to search for anything connected with reports of alien abductions in the west of the London area. The search parameters she set were wide-ranging, but a laptop was no longer a PC, a powerful software Loaded onto it was cable searching a far wider set of database that was strictly that then was strictly legal, not just conspiracy websites and dark web forums, but police reports, military communications, government memos. In less than fifteen minutes, she'd managed to find at least a dozen instances of missing people in the West London area, whilst there was nothing that could correlated with any official government reports indicating alien activity. Each of them did match the accounts of strange, crackling sounds. Five of them were in Penderville. Dorothy knew that she really had little choice other than to investigate further. That was going to upset a lot of people. She closed her laptop and glanced at her watch, 5.30am. Well, she murmured, taking off her glasses, nothing like getting an early start. And curling herself to the sofa, Dorothy, from the sofa, Dorothy made her way back upstairs. Took a brief shower and then changed into plain black leggings, a vest top, and a thick high neck pullover. She sat on the edge of the bed, slacing up boots. She glanced over the badge for Zoomed jacket that hung on a stand against the wall. Far wall. She posed for a moment, complimenting it. Why do I why do I even keep you? She said aloud. Have a whatever's going on. Whether the monsters from her past might rearing their heads, she needed to face them as a the woman she was now, not the girl that she used to be. Snatching a leather jacket from the wardrobe, Dorothy gave Sonorine a brief scratch behind the ears and hurried back down the stairs, crossed the room and unlocked the door that led directly into the company office. To a surprise, Sonorine was seated at the desk. Dorothy tuttered, Don't you ever sleep? Her business manager turned off, turned to her with an apologetic smile. He was in his early sixties, dressed in an immaculate three-piece suit, his silver-grey hair and beard, a stark contrast to the dark chestnut hue of his skin. 
It seems that neither of us been able to sleep, Mrs. Dorothy. You, I assume, been rudely awakened by your troubling dreams again, whilst I find they can never stay out, stay in my bed, that when I know that there is unfinished accounts to be dealt with. Dorothy Green said, oh, was more than just a colleague. He was a partner in crime, a confident, a friend. She met him during the relief operation of the catastrophic cyclone struck the Indonesian coast about five years ago. He'd been coordinating the emergency response teams while Dorothy had been there with her own team, setting up a temporary hospital structure, arranging for delivery of, military, of medical supplies. Over the two weeks they'd been thrown together, Dorothy watched him with growing admiration as he coped with, with crisis after crisis, setback after setback, always with a flappable good humour and meticulous attention to detail. He, in turn, saw her as something of a kindred spirit. The two of them had become close friends. Once the disaster was finally, over, finally under control, Dorothy had flown him back to Karel with her, with him. Taken him out of a bed meal and offered him a job. To his surprise, he had accepted without hesitation. And since he joined the management team, a, a charitable earth had never been run more efficiently. There, were, there was really only real, really one slight hiccup. That was, in over five years, he still might not manage to get him to call her by her first name. He met her... He spent his first year dressing her as Miss Shane, which set Dorothy's teeth on edge. In, a, in the end, she, they agreed to compromise that on Miss Dorothy. As far as Tazel was concerned, that was still respectful enough for him to be happy with it. And he amused Dorothy, because it made him her sound like one of Basil Brush's sidekicks. Serial smile faded as he noticed what she was wearing boots and leggings was exactly standard office dress the chief executive officer are you going out mrs dorothy dorothy nodded i think there's something going on that needs checking out i'm off to visit an old friend in beverville so can i only assume that you've forgotten you have a meeting with jane Ferry at the world ecological bureau at ten and another one with the disaster emergency committee at three. Dorothy said nothing. You've not forgotten, have you? Samuel tried not to fa- tried but failed to hide his disapproval. You want me to go in your place again? Dorothy held out her hands. What can I say? Something came up. But that only gives me Samuel checked his watch. Four hours to prepare. Yep, Dorothy started to edge towards the main doors. There's some notes in my desk diary that might help. Top drawer. I'll try and get back at the second for the second meeting if I can. Oh, I want you to find out which production company behind the Kim Fortune documentary series went out on Channel 19 this morning. Priorities, Mrs. Dorothy. You're right. Do that first. I need to tell <laughs> Kim interviewed, who says she's abducted. See you later. With a grin and away, Dorothy closed the doors and Cyril's cries of protest had hurried across the lobby, stabbing at the lift call button. To her relief, the lift was there waiting and the door slid open immediately. She stepped inside and pressed the button for the 
garage level. As the indicator lights started to blink away from 18 to 0, Dorothy felt a tingle of anticipation that she had not felt for many, many years. At the same time, she felt a pang for sadness that she didn't have the doctor alongside her to share this with. Seems as though there's still what to do, Professor. She shook her head, felt the angry bubble with her surprising heat. All the time she they'd overthrown evil, sought, brought down heartless regimes on Terra Alpha, Salagonan X, Colon Exo Minor. They sparked revolutions in a day and tripped merrily away in the darkness to somewhere new. But Dorothy knew now the real danger began when the empires toppled. Rebuilding was everything. If they walked away, they just left people to do it. You could be abandoning them to any of a hundred worse ways forward. But did we really do any good? How many times did she ask? Had she asked that of the, of the shadows in a silent penthouse, if they went back to those wells, we thought we saved. What would we find? She thought of the hull of reports, waiting for her to read of the shoe volume planning and admin required to bring aid to people who needed it, to spend the funds where it mattered, the little details, the little people, to coordinate so that the right changes came about. Yeah, there's work, Professor. Dorothy muttered, and I'm doing it my way. There was a soft chime at the door lift, reached the lowest level of the building, and the doors slid open. Targeted, triggered by the movement, banks of LEDs blanked into life, bathing the garage in a soft white light. Dorothy's moment of melancholy was lifted by the sight that greeted her. Samuel always referred to the garage as Mrs. Dorothy's toy box. He wasn't wrong. Two Honda Firebird. Motorcycles alone were enough to lift the spirits, but as a chic vehicle parked beside them, there was a real pride and joy. A hyper-green prototype of an ACE-funded start-up in Malaysia looked like a classic sport car. A go from zero to 90 miles an hour in just three seconds, and yet it was every bit as green as the name and paperwork would suggest. The car was parked on the pad on the floor. Charge it wildly with a full charge of liquid cooled solid state battery gave the car a range of over 400 miles. Along looking hyper green, he slipped into the driver's seat and grinned as the electric motors hummed into life. Using the paddles on the steering wheel to put the car into gear, she pulled out the parking space and accelerated at the ramp out of the garage and into the chill morning air. Wicked, she murmured, then bit her lip and eased up on the accelerator. What was she? Sixteen again? Even at this time in the morning, traffic was already starting to build up. Another hour, there would be no trail. By 8am, central London would be virtually gridlocked. Although that was the downside of where she she had chosen to build her headquarters, it at least gave her a cast-iron excuse to give to Al as to why she couldn't make it back the time for that DEC meeting. Turning out into onto Victoria Bankment, she made her way alongside the Thames for a short while, for snaking away through Covered Garden, the Holmbury, then up past Regent's Park, onto the Westway, heading out to London. As soon as she reached the level 
elevated section of Paddington, by Paddington Station. Station to first floor this area was almost too much to resist. She restrained herself. Crikey, I must be getting old. The first time she'd ever driven something had been on this stretch of road. A friend flowers been dating a plumber who, for some reason, she can't recall. The nickname Dark Rider. One Sunday, Darth had decided he was going to teach Dorothy how to drive. And then after an hour or so, grinding the gears, he broke up transit into the driveway of B&Q. They headed out onto the Westway. Dorothy could still recall the exhilaration. She felt she bat- as the battered old van picked up speed and needle on speed meter, crept higher and higher, 60, 70, 80. She remembered the screams of friends at the back as they begged her to slow down. Duff hadn't let her drive his well, hadn't let his her drive his van again after that. In fact, he never really looked at her the same way ever again. Realised perhaps he'd been unwittingly awoke a side of her, had been a dormant until that point, a yearning for speed, for excitement, or for danger. And he just was still there, under control. Thought Dorothy, you keep it under control. Chapter three. Before long, the elegant Art Deco footage, frontage of the pipe over building came into view, and soon after, Dorothy turned off the main street, making her way for the residential streets of Paravel, before pulling her halt outside an ugly low-rise block of flats. Locking the hypergreen, she made her way up the concrete stairs to the top floor. She knocked loudly on the painted door, painted horrendous shade of bright pink. After a few moments, there was a muffled curse and sound of movement from inside. The door opened and an attractive blonde and short, very short bathrobe appeared, squirming barely in the early morning light. Oh no, she groaned as she realised who she had welcomed her. All right, squeak, said Dorothy, looking in amusement at her trousered hair and smudged makeup. Blimey, getting up to be a bit old for clubbing on weekend night, aren't we? Thirty-seven isn't old. Dorothy gave her a look as that that she that she hope she hoped said, "Who do you think you're kidding?" And pushed her way inside, making her way to the tiny kitchenette. The place is still a total tip. Our most plates, takeaway plates, boxes piled up in every workshop. The sink full of mugs and wine glasses. Dorothy extracted two of the mugs, rinsed them, and then filled the kettle. Looks like it's, it was a good night. Yeah, well. I didn't expect to be up with a good, god-awful time the morning, did I? Dorothy cast an inquiring eye towards the bedroom door. I'm not disturbing anything, am I? Squeak. Squeak raised an eyebrow. No, you're not, Ace. All right, point taken. Dorothy asked people to stop calling Ace a long time ago, and she knew she should really return a favour. Okay, Chantel. I'm okay. I'm sorry. Dorothy known Chantel since she'd been been born. She's a baby. Sat her a couple of times at school when her mum been working late. Truth was that Chantel was actually wasn't actually a real name either. It was Abigail. But on her fifteenth birthday, she apparently decided she wanted to be an actress. That Abigail wasn't a show busy enough name, so she insisted that everyone started calling her Chantel instead. 
To be fair, she actually achieved her childhood ambition after a brief stint modelling clothes for the Hendrick online store and picked up a couple of part, bit parts in some of the soaps before landing a reasonably large role in a low-budget horror film that, in turn, led to a successful modelling career for a high-end fashion house. The sound size was actually also attracted a legion dedicated male fans. Most of them were trouble. Dorothy never met anyone who had dated so many wildlifes and losers of her tale. What continued to press Dorothy ever was that despite the reasonable success of her career that brought her, Chantel stayed close to home, getting herself a flat, same look as her mum and grand, shopping the same local stores she'd always had, still drinking the same pubs. In fact, the only way she had known that she's famous at all was the covers of dozens of glossy fashion magazines, featuring that hug, hung framed on virtually every wall. It wasn't just the fierce family loyalty that made Dorothy want to keep in touch with her. Chantel used some of her earnings to set up an anti-knife crime initiative in the area, putting money into the youth centres, skateboard parks and libraries. Dorothy had actually tried to get her to join a, a charitable earth on several occasions, but Ch- Chantel kept turning her down. She liked her modelling career, despite the man trouble. She liked the party girl lifestyle that went with it. This morning, however, she looked like she might be regretting the last part. Dorothy spooned a heaped teaspoon of instant coffee to each of the mugs, filled them both with boiling water, then hanged, handed one to Chantel. Here, I got the impression you might need it. Chantel granted something untangible and made her way into the lounge. Pushing aside a pair of discarded Lois Fertron jeans, something down on an elegant sofa. What are you doing here? Anyway, I need a bit of info, said Dorothy, following her. Uh, following her. Info that couldn't wait till a civilised time in the morning, given that uh, what that your idea of civilised time is gone. No, no. Chantel Gladder, you know you only ever get in touch when you want something, Miss C.O. You never... I just want to go out on chat or drink anymore. Don't keep... Can't keep up with you, can I? Dorothy said breezily. Because it's important. Please, it's important. It always is, Chantel sighed. Okay. What is it you're after? Dorothy told her about the programme she had watched by Alien Duchess, the Missing Girl, and saying joys in the research had done linking a large number of events to Benneville. She had dragged Chantel to be dismissed... She expected Chantel to be dismissive, angry, being dragged to her in bed because of claims made in some far-fetched conspiracy theory documentary. But instead, a friend listened carefully what she was saying. A frown began to cease, crease her forehead. Dorothy finished. Chantel put down the coffee and leaned forward. Oh, it's weird. I did hear a strange noise a few nights ago. Oh, what kind of noise? Sort of noise. Don't know, like firecrackers or a bunch of twigs snapping. I thought it was just, it was a car backfiring or kids mucking about. Didn't really take much notice. I had I had more to worry about with, with all the rats that we've been getting around here these days. Rats? Yeah, really big ones. I never had a problem with them around before, here before. I guess it's all the food bins left out these days, she pulls. There's one other thing. You're the second person to come around here to ask about this. Really? Dorothy, I has picked up. Who else has been asking? 
Chantel shrugged. I hadn't seen him before, but Gina said he, she caught a bloke poking round late at night in the alleyway behind her house. Her Malcolm chased him off. Dorothy felt a sudden urge of expectation. Could the doctor be back in Penneville, investigating things too? Before she could question Chantel further, her mobile phone suddenly rang in Chantel. She hit answer. Hi, something's up. I suggest you turn on the television. Dorothy frowned. Problem? It'd be easy if you just set, see it for yourself. Dorothy snatched up the remote from the table and switched on the vast flat screen television hanging on the wall. Every channel had the same story. Breaking news about a mysterious object that suddenly appeared on the, in the moon, orbit around the moon. The image that all of them was showing of a ship was indistinct. It appeared to be a slender, elegant comb with a series of spiral-like glows at one end. Dorothy felt a sudden shiver run along her spine. There was something thoroughly familiar about this. She flipped to the BBC News channel and seemed to have slightly more information about the incident. UFO appeared on the moon orbit at 7.10 GMT, both NASA and the ES, ES, ESA have confirmed there had been no prior detection of its approach, stating that the object must just appeared on the scanners from nowhere. Military sources from all major powers on Earth are saying that the rival UFO, without warning, is not ultimately seen as an act of aggression. However, it comes, makes any attempt to approach the planet without further communication of its intent, then action will be taken. In the meanwhile, it's understood that their missions have been prepared by NASA, ESA, Russia and India to intercept the UFO in the moon orbit. An unconfirmed report suggesting that China might have rocket ready to launch within 24 hours. We now go over to our Manchester studios with Professor, where science correspondent Jonathan Amos is talking to Professor Brian Tox about the arrival alien spacecraft might mean. Dorothy shut off the TV and unmuted her phone. So now, yes, Miss Dorothy. You've been to clear my diary for a few days. Without waiting for its confirmation, he hung up and slipped the phone back into the pocket. On the sofa, Chantel was looking concerned. Dorothy couldn't blame her. Something about that UFO had unnerved her. It wasn't nothing specific. You're certain she'd never seen anything like it before. But there was something. Something that was starting to go away in the back of memory. This isn't good, right, said Chantel. I mean, you come here talking about alien abduction, and this thing shows up. Surely it's not a coincidence. I don't think so, Dorothy sighed. So, what are we? Are you going to do now? Doctor Who, A Childhood's End by Sophia Aldred Past, present, future collide as the 13th Doctor meets a classic Doctor Who companion, Ace. In the first epic novel from the woman who played her, Sophia Eldrin. Once a girl called Ace travelled the universe with a doctor until the wake of a terrible tragedy, a party company. Decades later, he's known as Dorothy McShane, the exclusive, exclusive millionaire philanthropist who heads global organisation, a charitable earth. Dorothy is haunted by terrible nightmares, vivid dreams that began 
just as scores of young runaways vanishing from the dark alleyways of London. Could this experience be linked to sightings of sinister creatures lurking in the city shadows? Why has an alien satellite entered a secret orbit around the moon? Investigating the satellite with Ryan, Graham and Yaz, the doctor is phoned together with Ace once more. Together they must unravel a malevolent pilot that has cost a malevolent plot that will cost thousand lives. But can the doctor alone tone for a passing carnation behaviour? And how much must Ace sacrifice the win, not only for herself, but for Earth?